still steeped in a renaissance of a great black movie complementing an even better soundtrack, in 1997, there was Love Jones, a romance tale from the Midwest about lovers and friends. Focused on the entanglement of Nia Long's Nina and Lorenz Tate's Darius, plays like the black cool 90s version of About Last Night. And when I say better soundtrack, I mean an R&B first, as Love Jones's thematic tone leaned heavily on the emerging neo-soul sound, classic jazz, and spoken word poetry. The Love Jones soundtrack magnifies and accentuates mellow smooth aesthetics that were very quickly becoming a refreshing and welcomed contrast to hip hop's permeation into all facets of pop culture. A cuffing season, warm tea on a rainy Saturday affair featured tracks from newly arrived artists like Cassandra Wilson, Trina Broussard, the brand new heavies with the soundtrack's only up-tempo tune, Kenny Lattimore, Maxwell, the pre-miseducation solo Lauren Hill, Groove Theory, Michelle and Deggy Ocello with Sweet Marcus Miller, and the harmonic prowess of Escape. But the standout, the artist and single that made me pick up the album to give it a listen was scene stealer Dion Ferris. That intensely moving voice from Aught Rap's Arrested Development and her solo debut, Wild Teed Wild Flower, sang the emotional range of the film flawlessly on the beloved opening track, Hopeless. Produced by American Idol Randy Jackson and a then unknown Van Hunt who wrote this song along with Ferris. Together, they truly weaved an intricate knot of the relentless complications of the human narrative, a particularly impressive skill of Van Hunt's, brilliantly mastered on his debut album seven years later. It's a narrative steeped in the landmines of new connections tied to sex, romance, and intimacy. What Hopeless does is unravel the vulnerability within all those things at once. And Dion's deep, profound vocal talent owns that vulnerable space, singing with authority to assert her wholeness while simultaneously nurturing the journey of a soundtrack that is letting listeners know that this thing called Neo Soul has a history and strong present, and a sound that was about connectedness. This was an evolving movement, in 1997, another intriguing artist blossomed on this stage to set a whole vibe for the next century just around the corner. Most intellects do not believe in God, but they fear us just the same, sang Erica Badu on her sublime debut single, On and On, from her dazzling now classic debut album, Baduism, released on February 11th, 1997 an album that expanded on the sound of R&B and the neo-soul subgenre in particular, making Badu its queen and one of its pioneers. Though, like D'Angelo, she understandably rejected the confines of the term. But it's hard not to find a word or phrase to describe what they were doing because this was so distinct from mainstream R&B. But y'all, Erica Badu debuted with a single that challenged and transformed what an R&B song could be about. On and On, in essence, is both neo-soul and hip-hop respectively, but content-wise, it felt somewhat like Parliament Funkadelic, Space Age, New Age, Metaphysical, Existential, and Funny as Hell all at once. This was pretty mind-blowing stuff. Five percenter teachings and a vocal delivery reminiscent of jazz icon Billie Holiday. Erica Badu was here to stretch R&B into new territory. Most fascinating is that On and On not only dominated Black radio, it was a commercial success. How many songs about Afro-philosophical themes go mainstream? Her influences are clear. Jazz, soul, funk, hip-hop. You can clearly draw a line from the Native Tongues Collective of A Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, Queen Latifah, to Erica Sound the alternative hip-hop space that celebrated Afrocentricity and embraced the knowledge of self. But Erica brought these themes into R&B music and was widely adored and highly acclaimed. The head rap became her signature and caused a new wave of Black women and girls rocking them in the process. Even the way Erica sings about R&B's most central theme, love, is heady and remarkable. Take her song, Next Lifetime, where Erica is already in a relationship and finds herself drawn to another man. Her anguish expressed here is cosmic. I marveled the first time I heard this song. She literally sings, I guess I'll see you next lifetime. This was R&B at its most abstract and mystical, but she makes it feel so relatable. The inner torment of meeting someone you can't be with is as familiar as any theme about love, but Erica gave it cosmological significance that forever is a tangible thing and lifetimes beyond this one hold tremendous possibility and attainability. 
In the video, Erica briefly moves through different eras of Black history, from the motherland to Black nationalism to Afrofuturism. And in each era, a new man enters her life, all of them played by hip hop artists. And she doesn't stop there. Her song, Other Side of the Game, explores the complicated nature of being in love with a drug dealer and the indecision of being pregnant. She doesn't demonize her drug dealing lover. She sympathizes with his struggle and the life they've chosen. But it's also evident she fears their future and the uncertainty she feels is palpable. Nobody was making R&B like this at this moment. To me, this is one of the most brilliant R&B songs ever made, hands down. Erica Badu and her Baduism album spoke to me profoundly when it debuted. Selling 3 million records, I definitely wasn't the only one mesmerized. I think what truly makes her stand out as the genius musician and singer she is, is that with all the heightened thematic material, her music feels so deeply accessible. You don't have to be a student of philosophy or metaphysics to understand her existentialist brand of R&B. Erica Badu is here to intimately explore with us the vastness of our universe while planted firmly on the ground. I'm writer and professor Ashley Blackwell. I'm screenwriter and music enthusiast Robin Shanae. And this is Rhythm and Schooled. Breaking down 90s R&B one year at a time. Episode 8, 1997, Are You Still Down? On January 30th, 1989, controversy swirled in the Black community when pop star George Michael won a Grammy for favorite soul R&B male artist with his hit album, Faith, and also won the Best R&B Album Award. George Michael was beloved by Black music listeners since the start of his career with the British pop duo Wham. His brand of pop was soulful, his R&B influences were evident and visible, and the majority of Black audiences loved his music. So why the big uproar over his win in 1989? Because this win stirred up a lot of anguish for Black people. History reminded us of what happened to rock and roll. Birth from the brilliance of Little Richard and soon evolved into a genre that had very few Black artists, a complete whitening to the point where many of us had to be told rock and roll started with Black creators and innovators. Black people didn't want to see that happening again. R&B was created by us, like rock and roll was. We were also keenly aware that whenever white artists made quote-unquote Black music, they would sell more records and be embraced massively in a way Black artists were not. In our very first episode of the podcast, Ashley and I delved into the birth and the transformation of R&B over the decades. And what is clear in our episode and in history is that R&B music is part of the central nervous system of the Black experience in a way that cannot be denied. So what happens when white artists make R&B music? Well, it's all very, very complicated. The term blue-eyed soul was coined by a Black radio DJ from Philadelphia named Georgie Woods. He used the term as a way to label white artists who got airplay on Black radio, notably at that time in the 60s with the Righteous Brothers and eventually Dusty Springfield, Small Faces, and the Spencer Davis group. By the 70s and 80s, white artists who made R&B and soul like Kenny Loggins, the Doobie Brothers, Hall of Notes, George Michael, Simply Red, Culture Club, these artists were often embraced by Black audiences. And notably, most notably, the very much adored and beloved Tina Marie, whose relationship to Black music listeners can hardly be articulated. All I can say is Tina Marie was and will always be family. By the 90s, Many Black music listeners had moved past the term blue-eyed soul, a term that lots of white artists singing R&B also rejected. Some of the fears of Black audience were mostly quelled, because by the 90s, we could see that no one was stealing R&B from us. Even when white artists made huge records in R&B, that didn't necessarily whiten R&B. Even with some skepticism, many Black music listeners believed we could distinguish the genuine white recording artists from the posers and the appropriators. When we get to 1997, white recording artist John B. releases his second album, Cool Relax, and he is fully embraced by Black radio. Though nowhere near the collective adoration Black people have for Tina Marie, 
But like her, John B. is seen as an authentic R&B singer. And he also appeared to be completely satisfied with being a mainstay on Black radio and BET. Like Tina Marie, he was fine with making R&B music for Black audiences. There seemed to be no desire to cross over. His album, Cool Relax, is a remarkable display of smooth, romantic R&B. Babyface's influence is clear, but John B. has his own unique signature on R&B. There's like this tremor in his voice that is so particular. And on his mid-tempo grooves, aching vulnerability, and lush, silky slow jams, he makes himself distinct in the pantheon of blue-eyed soul. With his magnificent chart topper, they don't know about the fragility of a relationship being strained by gossip, the mid-tempo standout, Are You Still Down?, which featured Tupac, the sweet romanticism of I Do, which is Say Boo. Along with a slew of soulful jams on this album, John B. proved he had a place in R&B music. He wasn't here to steal anything. He was truly here to show love. This was the year where the Haley Bop comet came closer and closer to Earth, and in turn, reignited a belief that would have dire consequences for 39 people. The belief was that Haley Bop masked an extraterrestrial craft that was an express line to the kingdom of heaven. This religious doctrine of the cult, Heaven's Gate, led by Marshall Applewhite, or Doe, had a steadfast philosophy that focused on life outside of their physical bodies. And this comet was a sign from above to take action. Each member, including Applewhite, committed suicide by lethal amounts of drugs and alcohol in March. Its impact? Heaven's Gate was deemed the cult of the internet era. Never before was the spread of beliefs so much more instant and digitized, as the web was now affirmed as a tool for recruitment for just about anything. And speaking of technology, Winamp, a Microsoft Windows media player feature developed by two college students at the University of Utah, was released. This was a pre-Napster sought-after consumer software product. So before digital music sharing, if you wanted the hits on repeat, you had to hit up your local Coconuts or Tower Records for some of music's biggest songs and artists of the year. Like the antiseptic wonderbread trio of Brothers Hanson with their everywhere single, Umbop. Pop acts were sizzling during this period and had legions of fans screaming for additional units like the Backstreet Boys and Sync and UK's The Spice Girls. Now, I told you we were in an atmosphere of a women in music era that came out possibly a bit more bolder than yesteryear, taking the mainstream and main stage, starting with poster child Alanis Morissette. Joining her on that stage was Canadian singer-songwriter Sarah McLaughlin, who was done hearing that women music artists couldn't sell if they were on performance lineups together or played back-to-back on radio. She wanted to prove these naysayers wrong. So Little Fair was created as an all-woman artist experience for concertgoers who were into the very profound in folk, rock, pop, and country of the time. And on July 5th, Little Fair began a three-year tour run that more than proved its worth in profit and audience sizes, becoming one of the highest-grossing concerts of the late 1990s, outpacing Lollapalooza with $60 million in sales on tickets alone pre-inflation. While breaking the gender barrier, its success did not mean it was immune to shortcomings, especially in the arena of music genres and artists who got to take the stage. You know what I mean, R&B, soul, and rap. While there was no doubt it was awesome to see a nod towards the sisters a bit more removed from the milieu of the R&B and hip-hop of the time, like Tracy Chapman, the variety of acts left more to the imagination. How could Lil' Affair be more than one note? Enter Queen Latifah, Erica Badu, India Davenport, India Ari, Maya, yep, even Monica, joined the bill, and Missy Elliott, who this year, before joining Lil' Affair in 1998, released her first solo effort, Super Duper Fly, punching down on lames who truly didn't believe in women as a creative force in hip-hop, and the audacity of a woman who doesn't fit into the industry's generic beauty model. She was like our generation's Bessie Smith. Now let's shift towards talking about film. Now we don't have nearly enough time to name them all, but I remember the marketing and hype beast for Scream's sequel and evangelized about it during the week of its release in early December, just in time for my birthday. And I was there opening night. And you could not grab the soundtrack. True to the times with his spread of rap, R&B, alternative, and rock, 
You want to talk best covers of all time? Look no further than D'Angelo's version of Princess She's Always in My Hair recorded for the soundtrack. Some of my other personal favorites were Jackie Brown, East Bayou, Soul Food, I Know What You Did Last Summer, which I saw opening night with a packed crowd and friends, I came home exhilarated, playing God, Trojan War, and let's not forget cult classics like Chasing Amy, Starship Troopers, Baps, Lost Highway, and The Fifth Element. Major box office champs were Man in Black, Jurassic Park, The Lost World, Liar Liar, and Titanic. This movie just wouldn't go away. My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion. The complimentary song to the film was on the radio every single second. When I finally saw the movie, I hated it even more for being so astronomically mediocre, yet completely taking over pop culture for way too long. Just a refresher, Titanic is about the real-life tragedy of the large ship sinking in 1912, with writer-director James Cameron adding a class-crossed love story with Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, making over $2 billion to date off of an estimated $200 million budget. This was in the not-for-me category so firmly, still is. I cannot express how much I am glad this phenomenon is past tense. (laughs) Records and milestones were being made in television as well. The Simpsons became the longest-running animated television series ever. And stand-up comedian Ellen DeGeneres, now in the fourth season of her popular TV series titled Ellen on ABC, made a media splash when her character came out as gay on national television, making her the first queer leading character in the medium. The controversial Puppy episode had a week-long lead-up, with Ellen appearing on the cover of Time magazine with her own public coming out line that simply said, yep, I'm gay, and an exclusive 2020 interview. On April 30th, about 42 million people watched the hour-long episode, where I remember cackling like a fool when Ellen's character, who was trying to get with Lauren Dern's character, accidentally leans into the microphone at the airport and says, I'm gay, and a swell of canned laughter let the moment take a beat. Never again would Ellen's show have a pinnacle quite like it, and it would be canceled by the next year due to low ratings. But another big news that was no laughing matter, NXS frontman Michael Hutchins reportedly committed suicide in his room at the Ritz-Carlton in Sydney, Australia. Improv and comedic actor Chris Farley was found dead on December 18th of a speedball overdose at 33. And Princess Diana, the Princess of Wales, who broke barriers by being unabashedly beloved by people regardless of race, culture, ethnicity, and age, was fatally injured in a car accident on August 31st in Paris, France. At only 36 years old, she used her position to rid the public of prejudices about people living with HIV-AIDS, comforted the sick, folks without homes, and additionally took a historic trip to Angola to meet with landmine survivors and walked the land, advocating for the banning of them. In her authenticity, she was the people's princess. At her funeral, Elton John sang Candle in the Wind, a single that quickly became the fastest-selling single ever, and later in the year, the all-time global bestseller. But when will it end? That was the question asked on the cover of the May 1997 issue of Vibe magazine in response to the tragic fatal shooting of Christopher Wallace, someone we called Biggie Smalls, Biggie, the notorious B.I.G., Frank White being a personal favorite because I love the film King of New York too. On March 9th in Los Angeles, after leaving an overcrowded party at the Peterson Automotive Museum, we lost a young man, bursting with genius lyricism. A master at his craft, who was also a son, a husband, a father, a loyal friend, and a budding business mogul. At just 24 years old, the world was his. After the impact of the death of Tupac Shakur and this 1997 crescendo of the East Coast-West Coast rap rivalry, It was such an emotionally exhausting time for fans as our hearts ached for all of their loved ones. Seeing scenes from the Brooklyn public outpour of support was massively overwhelming. Seeing little Kim drowning in grief with Mary J. Blige holding onto her was devastating. The first song I remember hearing on the radio to honor him in Philly was unbelievable. And his posthumous album, Life After Death, is a masterwork. This was another year where so much happened. I'll just briefly name a few things that really stayed with me. Starting with, of course, the passing of the Notorious B.I.G. He, at the time, was my favorite rapper, and still now, he's in my top five. Such a phenomenal talent gone too soon. 
And I agree with you, Ashley. His Life After Death album is a masterwork. And it was so overwhelming to lose him and Tupac months apart. The hip-hop generation was grieving hard. And losing these two giants was a profound loss. Definitely changed hip-hop, too. Princess Di's passing was very, very sad. Black folks really adored that woman for all the reasons you mentioned. She was beloved by so many. And I remember being in a journalism class in high school where we discussed the media firestorm around her passing. On a much, much lighter note, Scream 2 remains my favorite movie-going experience of all time. I was 17, hanging with my cousins down south in North Carolina, and we saw that film with a predominantly Black audience, and it was absolutely wild. We had a blast. Eve's Bayou is a film that changed my life. As a young screenwriter at the time, I felt like that movie gave me permission to tell the stories I wanted to tell, the way I wanted to tell them. It remains my favorite film for so many reasons. And finally, I just want to acknowledge the brilliance of you aligning Missy Elliott with the Empress of the Blues, Bessie Smith. Child, let me do a whole documentary on that lineage right now. (laughs) This is such a keen observation. Missy didn't fit into any box as an artist or an image, and she was bold in her sex positivity even before this was a term. Her unique flow, her frank sexual lyrics, and innovative approach to rhythm and blues and hip-hop is definitely because of Bessie's legacy. Honestly, Bessie's legacy is vast, but please don't get me started. I will be here all day. For the top 20 R&B singles of 1997, according to Playback FM. I'll Be Missing You by Puff Daddy and Faith Evans. Together Again by Janet Jackson. You Make Me Wanna by Usher. I love this song and I can't wait to talk about this song in the deep dive segment. Men in Black by Will Smith. Can't Nobody Hold Me Down by Puff Daddy and Mace. Hypnotized by Notorious B.I.G. My Body by LSG. It was such a delight to see these three R&B powerhouses, Gerald Avert, Keith Sweat, and Johnny Gill, come together as a group and make the sensuous R&B all of them are known for. In My Bed by Drew Hill. The remix and the original go hard. The OG has the drama and the theatrics, and the remix has that bounce and that super dope quotable rap by Brett. No, no, no by Destiny's Child, More Money, More Problems by Notorious B.I.G., Don't Let Go Love by En Vogue, Four Seasons of Loneliness by Boys to Men, Honey by Mariah Carey. Such a great hip-hop sample on this one, and Mariah's vocals are so dreamy and gorgeous. Get Out by Changing Faces. I love a good song about kicking somebody to the curb. It's All About the Benjamins by Diddy. For You, I Will by Monica. My Love is the Shh by Something for the People. Never Make a Promise by Drew Hill. A Song for Mama by Boys to Men. This song perfectly fit the Soul Food soundtrack. And it's a pretty, pretty solid soundtrack. Not Tonight by Little Kim. I tried to comment primarily on the R&B tracks, but most of the hip hop songs here are dope. But this doesn't even really feel like an R&B charts anymore. Wow, it's just such a shift. I just want to mention really quick, Never Make a Promise by Drew Hill. You were talking about Blue-Eyed Soul a little bit earlier. And one of my funniest memories from high school is one of these, like, one of my white male classmates singing Never Make a Promise, just <laughs> spontaneously. And I remember when I first yes. heard it, I, like, my, my literally my head whipped to his direction. <laughs> and he kind of smirked. Because he knew he could sing. I love that. And I was just, I was so enchanted by this white (laughs) boy who sung Drew Hill so well. But I want to at least talk about the biggest song of the year, which was I'll Be Missing You by, he goes by so many names, but during (laughs) this time, he was Puff Daddy. We also had Faith Evans and 112 on this track. And this was like a tribute to Notorious B.I.G. Completed less than three months after his passing. And you may have had the single, like me, 
or got it on Puff Daddy's album, No Way Out. It heavy samples the coveted Every Breath You Take by the police, a sample that costs Diddy daily, he pays Sting 5K every 24 hours because he didn't originally clear the sample. Wow. I'm not sure what to say about this list in general, because you're right. This doesn't feel like an R&B chart. I've mentioned In My Bed by Drew Hill before being a personal favorite, but you are spot on about DeBrat in that remix. Oh, every time (laughs) it comes on, I'm singing that whole thing. Right. And this Boys to Men output wasn't bad either. I did like these songs as well. Um, Like I said earlier, Boys to Men kind of, you know, I kind of got used to them and Mm -hmm. some of the songs I actually really did enjoy. Yay. And of course, I really liked Get Out by Changing Faces. I really like them too. I'm telling you, kicking someone to the curb music is very bad. (laughs) And now for the 40th Annual Grammy Awards, aired on... February 25th, 1998, to celebrate music made in 1997. The nominees for Best Rhythm and Blues Song of 1997 are Stomp by Kurt Franklin and God's Property, On and On by Erica Badu, I Believe I Can Fly by R. Kelly, Honey by Mariah Carey, No Diggity by Blackstreet. And the winner is I Believe I Can Fly by R. Kelly. Yep, the biggest, most universal song of the year one. From this group of nominees, this song had the utmost crossover appeal, maybe, and it was light years more accessible than his previous works. We can all probably agree. (laughs) Yes, yes. And the song was everywhere. Folks love a good, sentimental song about motivation and soaring to new heights in life. This was played at every graduation, (laughs) funeral, and talent show. But if I had to choose, I'd give the award to Erica Badu. On and On is a game changer. Also seeing Stomp here is so interesting. Kirk had conservative, traditional Black church folks upset for a while with the way he infiltrated R&B radio with gospel slash Christian songs. He was dissolving boundaries between secular and quote unquote sacred music. And a lot of people were not happy at the time. This line of thinking has a very complicated history, but personally, I love Stomp. The whole God's Property album got me through some tough times when it came out, and honestly, it still gets me through. Doing the impossible, This is where we choose just a few of our favorite tracks from the year. My first pick, You Make Me Wanna by Usher. You know something I absolutely love about R&B music? You will sometimes find some of the most cold-blooded songs over the smoothest, funkiest beats. Case in point, in 1977, Teddy Pendergrass had a song called I Don't Love You Anymore. Over an ultra-funky, Philly disco groove that you could dance all night to. He's saying, I don't love you anymore. It's just that simple. I laugh every time I hear that song. Just cold-blooded, but man, the beat is so danceable. He is quite joyously dumping this woman. Usher on this remarkable single is going for something similar, but also a bit more complex, which is truly why I love the song. You Make Me Wanna is kind of cold-blooded, If you're his girlfriend, he sings, you make me want to leave the one I'm with and start a new relationship with you, quote unquote. It's a funky, upbeat R&B jam with hip hop swagger and an impeccably layered acoustic guitar. He is singing to his female best friend or confidant, the one he constantly confides in, the one who hooked him up with his girlfriend in the first place, which honestly makes the song a million times more amazing. First, how often do guys fall for their female besties? Most of us just be living on the sidelines from my own personal experiences. Also, it's so rare to even hear a song where a man is talking about a female confidant at all. And here in this song, 
Usher is tormented by his deepening feelings for the woman he confides in. Should he leave his girlfriend for his girl best friend? And y'all, we ain't even got to the kicker yet. He is asking the confidant what he should do. Because she is the one who understands him and knows him. He wants her help figuring this out. This is such a great song for so many reasons. <laughs> I marvel at it anytime I hear it. Plus, he wants a relationship. Emphasize relationship. Not a fling, not a one-night stand. He is seeking commitment long-term. It was a massive hit and my favorite song from the My Way album. With the help of the highly skilled producer, Jermaine Dupree, You Make Me Wanna and the sophomore album, My Way, launched Usher into superstardom. The moment I saw the video, I saw Usher so differently. He was grown up. His vocals were mature. His dancing was thrilling to watch. His swag was on 100. He felt like a direct descendant of Bobby Brown from the tree of Michael Jackson. But he was definitely here to carve out his own path. For my next pick, The Sweetest Thing by Lauryn Hill. So The Sweetest Thing is from the Love Jones soundtrack. I think the song perfectly fits a film centering the dizzying, often unexpected whirlwind of love and romance. This is definitely one of my favorite love songs, and I'll explain why. First, I love, love, love Lauren's vocals here. That ache in her voice, the yearning and the vulnerability, you feel her truly experiencing the inexplicable. She really can barely even express what it is, so the lyrics, the poetry of the lyrics, try to describe for us what seems impossible to emotionally calculate. And that's what I love so much about this song, the lyrics. So much depth, so much nuance and cleverness captured. For instance, quote unquote, makes me argue just to see how much you're in love with me. And quote unquote, I get mad when you walk away. So I tell you leave when I mean stay. The song is tangled up in the contradicting feelings of love. The way we can fight what we feel and then surrender completely to it at the same time. And finally, my favorite line, speaking on my mother's phone, the touch that makes me think I'm grown. And then you hear, you ain't grown. <laughs> I just love that so much. There are moments when you hear Lauren speaking while she's singing, a lot like an inner voice, a bit of self-reflective call and response. It's a space where one is living proof and a witness to what's happening to them. For my next pick, I chose Stop By by Rassan Patterson. If you are Gen X or an elder millennial, you might remember Rassan Patterson from the 80s kids show, Kids Incorporated, where kids would perform music numbers on every episode. The show also had folks like Fergie from the Black Eyed Peas and eventually Jennifer Love Hewitt. I loved the show as a kid and always remembered Rasan Patterson because he played the kid and he was the only Black kid on the show at the time. Fast forward to 1997 and Rasan Patterson releases his single and debut album. Stop By is a really dope neo-soul funk jam. Prior to this release, he notably co-wrote Brandy's single Baby and Back to the World for Tevin Campbell. When you listen to Stop By, you can feel the vibe of Baby it's so vibrant, which is how I describe everything Rasan Patterson does, but especially on this single. It kind of reminds me of the music from Maxwell's Urban Hang Suite, one of those after-hours disco party jams made very specifically for its so late, it's early listeners. The song is about a man who had a romantic encounter that was so good he wants a repeat experience because he's falling in love and lust. Did I mention how funky this song is? You can feel the impact of 70s and 80s funk here, even with Rasan's vocal delivery. I've been a longtime fan of Rasan. He's made a very long, meaningful career and many super solid albums out of creating consistently wonderful R&B music. Stop By is just a part of the early phases of his magic. For my next pick, When You Cry by SWV. I love that When You Cry really sets a mood, pun intended. The song beautifully samples Tyrone Davis's In The Mood, which is a deep soul heavy hitter. Deep soul, another subgenre of R&B, best described as an offshoot of Southern soul, which is rooted in grit and passion and often very mature romantic themes with an almost gospel-like fervor and delivery. 
and the Black elders who would affectionately call it liquor house jams, juke joint jams, or red cup music. (laughs) If you know, you know. (laughs) Tyrone Davis is one of Deep Soul's biggest names. The sample and Coco's gorgeous vocals are magical here. The song is sensual yet emotionally captivating. The idea of consoling a man in tears feels refreshing as well. The song is about the oneness of love, whatever you experience, I experience. The chorus is playful and childlike with lyrics like, if you love me once, I'll love you twice, quote unquote. But also the song feels like a plea for commitment and perhaps also forgiveness. Coco's vocals just soar here and the mood is slightly haunting, which is probably why I love this song so much. And my final pick, Full of Smoke by Christian. I've mentioned in previous episodes about the way 90s R&B artists were paying homage to legends of previous decades. Either with renditions of classic material or with original material giving it a retro feel. Full of Smoke is an original song marinating in classic 70s soul aesthetics and was released on Rockefeller Records. By this time in my life, my dad had already introduced me to black exploitation films and those incredible soundtracks. Curtis Mayfield's luminous Superfly album got a lot of play in our home. My dad is a big fan of Curtis, and I ended up becoming a big fan in the process. Full of Smoke feels so much like Curtis Mayfield. It also feels like a kindred spirit to Marvin Gaye's Trouble Man song, also made for a black exploitation film of the same name. With Full of Smoke, there's this soulful hustler vibe to it. It's very moody and atmospheric and also very haunting. There's real despair here. It seems like the song is about the perils of addiction, street life and the facade and fragility of cool, where cool becomes self-destruction. It's like a whole black exploitation movie in a song. I think it's pretty dope and I just felt like I had to mention it here. And I think it's important to note, retro soul would eventually become its own subgenre by the 2000s. Contemporary artists making vintage sounding soul and breaking through with recording artists like Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, Duffy, Charles Bradley, Amy Winehouse, Joss Stone, and Raphael Sadiq, to name a few. So Ashley, what's your deep dive looking like? Oh, wow. Joss Stone. That's, wow. (laughs) We got to get into that later. But my first pick here is Let It Go by Ray J. And I just think it's a shame that a multitude of shenanigans have completely eclipsed this first album and their singles. It's almost as if they never existed much to my chagrin because Let It Go is a rooty, bluesy swing joint with Ray J singing talent at its peak here. Even the video has a hip hop juke joint feel to it. Maybe an interpretive nod to Ray J's family roots in Mississippi. I don't know. Just taking a good guess here. The grassy guitar, bass, and clavinet give the song a much more earthy feel that hangs in the community between hip-hop soul and neo-soul. When Ray J sings about letting go, he's talking about the pain, hostility, and the hard times of a nine-to-five, and insists on relaxing and getting your boogie shoes because we all family here. There's nothing else to do but dance and lose control. At 15, Ray J had a charm and talent that made it easy for him to transition into solo R&B artist territory after his stint on The Sinbad Show. And being Brandy's little brother didn't hurt either. Working with Brandy collaborators like producer Keith Crouch and Rasan Patterson on background vocals, Let It Go is a Norwood staple that I feel is criminally underrated. Also in 97, you had Swing My Way by KP and Envy. Hot off of our exposure to the single My Boo, transcending regional taste to become a banger for the many, the bass thumper Swing My Way seems to ride this hot trail effortlessly. The Southern-infused colloquialisms, beat-matched rhymes, and the blue-eyed songbirding had listeners intrigued, including myself. So much so that Swing My Way reached number six on Billboard's Hot 100 in March of 98 and number five on the U.S. Hot R&B and Hip Hop list. A collaboration between two Atlanta-based aspiring solo artists, so rapper KP is Kia Phillips and singer Envy was Susan Hedgepeth, created a dance floor jam about getting the guy with lines like, swing it over here, shouty. (laughs) It's been mainly quiet for those who worked on this track. Now, I am familiar with background vocalist Algera Blissett, who emerges as a solo artist within the neo-soul movement a few years after this, and one Ludacris Bridges, who wrote the remix, which breaks the following year on the Can't Hardly Wait soundtrack. I love that soundtrack. 
But the main two have been low on the radar in the biz sense. Now, separately, they appeared on other tracks for other hip-hop artists specifically. They have been releasing their own music. Oh, and if you're trying to call Envy to swing your way, you better use her new name, which is Sulane. I also thought about Crush by Jeanne as another great single from 97. It's the soothing, melting process of two contrasting yet dynamically blended voices that enrapture you first. I've listened to this song countless times and still am in awe of how they did all that harmonizing. Again, two distinct deliveries, yet their bond is near incomparable. We've mentioned this duo before because of their strong appearances throughout the decade. Jeanne Setlist has been aimed right at the melanated college crowd, but other young brothers and sisters were also along for the vibe as well. Jeanne's second album, Saturday Night, is a Gen X happy hour setting the mood for the inevitable quiet storm. The first single release, Request Line, and then the second, Crush, follows this formula. The whole effort is right on time with 90s R&B infused with classic soul, funk, and jazz. Crush is one of my favorite cool-out songs, but it has plenty of warmth within the lyrics written beautifully by one half of Jeanne, Renee Nafel, KG, and Darren Lighty. Even though it leans heavily into the unrequited affection theme, Crush is brought to life with palpable angst. I am so with you and how this is a favorite cool-out song. It's just a gorgeous groove. And you already know how I feel about Jeanne. Just so underrated. But they made some really dope R&B jams beyond their Hey Mr. DJ moment. And this right here is the evidence. Oh, yeah. This album should get more love than it does. Yes. And speaking of like your kind of quiet storm type of songs, one of my favorites from this era is Anytime by Brian McKnight. Now, if it sounds familiar, there's an interpolation of Michelle and Deggio Cello's Outside Your Door from her debut throughout. And if I'm being honest, that's probably the hook for me for this song. But I also really resonate with the chorus that are sung questions initiated to quell the vulnerability beast. So the longing of missing someone, almost as if their absence is haunting, and riddled less with closure and more with uncertainty. Anytime is an anxiety lullaby that feels too real. And this is also the title track of his third album and his first album to make it to number one. And how could we not mention Rain by SWV as a 1997 single? This is a song that Lily insists saved their third album, Really Some Tension, and written by Brian Alexander Morgan, who Taj declares is the essence of the SWV sound. These digital streets have declared analysis on this infectious ballad, the suggestion being that the song is about the release of bodily functions during intimacy. Now, for me in 1997, (laughs) I would have never guessed. I was 15 going on 16, and I was personally trying to hold on to the last bit of innocence I had. As recently as 2020, the trio has cleared up these assumptions. Coco insists that it's about love's vitality, and I am sticking with that. It samples from the 70s jazz track Jaco Pistorius's Portrait of Tracy. I recommend to listen to that song because it's really quite beautiful. Rain has itself been sampled by newer R&B and rap artists of today, noting its absolute timelessness and replayability. I cannot tell you how satisfying it has been to see SWV getting their flowers this year. Major magazine features, awards, platinum plaques. As a fan for 31 years, I am privileged to witness this moment. Yes, truly a privilege, and they absolutely deserve all the love and the acclaim. And every time I hear this song, I'm like, yup, this is my favorite SWV song. It's just so beautiful. I love it. I love it. I love it. School is in session. So with our legacy segment, we just want to have longer discussions regarding artists, careers, albums, moments, and movements in the 90s, trying to add nuance and to contextualize music history for y'all. Because this music history is massive and we can't dismiss it. Let's embrace it and all the complexities that come with it. 
with Share My World and Butterfly. Mary J. Blige and Mariah Carey explore personal and artistic growth and transformation. 1997 became a year of personal and artistic growth for so many artists, it seems. But I'd like to speak very specifically about two female recording artists who were at the top of their game by 1997, yet created albums that evolved their sound and took their careers to another level. Let's start with Mary J. Blige and her album, Share My World, which feels like the catalyst to Mary becoming fully realized as an artist with limitless potential and possibilities. The most notable distinction with this album is the absence of mentor, producer, collaborator, Puff Daddy. He was there in the beginning, launching Mary's career with her genre-shifting debut album, What's the 411, that helped birth the subgenre, hip-hop soul, naming her rightfully its queen. He also was at the helm of her second album, My Life, another groundbreaking effort in hip-hop soul where Mary vocalized her personal demons and became a music therapist for an entire generation, an album often still hailed as her greatest musical achievement. Mary's professional break from Puffy, her label change from Uptown Records to MCA, and Mary becoming an executive producer all factor into the significance of this album. Mary experiencing a newfound sense of personal liberation, growth, and confidence resonates strongly here. Listening to the album, there's a sense of optimism, hope, and even redemption unseen before. I always think finding the right collaborators can make or break a recording artist's career. This time around, Mary cast a wide net of producers with legends like Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, Babyface, up-and-comers like Rodney Jerkins, and featured appearances from legendary musicians George Benson and Roy Ayers. With the feel-good first single, Love Is All We Need, featuring Nas, we could sense that Mary was in a very different place in her life. You can feel the yearning for joy and celebration. My favorite track on the album is the hip-hop soul bop, I Can Love You, featuring Lil' Kim spitting a now-classic lyrical cannonball for the Notorious B.I.G., Mary has a take-no-prisoner's confidence on this track. Her vocal approach here is so mature and so self-assured. This is Mary in the midst of an awakening. Standout tracks like Missing You, the George Benson-assisted Seven Days, and Everything, which is often stated as being a fan favorite, illustrate the artistic growth in Mary as she takes real chances with production and approach to the material. And the song Share My World, also the name of the album, says so much about where Mary is personally and artistically. The words are an invitation. Instead of keeping us at a distance, Mary invites us in. The song itself is a tale centering the reassurance of love and loyalty, a commitment to experience the personal journey of a lover. With this album, Mary expands on her sound, hip-hop, soul, and beyond. This is a showcase of an artist in control of her career and destiny. This album had multi-platinum success and commercial crossover appeal. It was here with this album, she became a superstar. And speaking of superstars, interestingly enough, Mariah Carey also had something to prove in 1997. She named her album Butterfly because what else could symbolize the beauty of transformation better than that? Like Mary Shedding Puff, Mariah made this album after her divorce from husband and record executive Tommy Mottola. And like Mary, Mariah's album Butterfly allowed her a sense of personal and artistic liberation she didn't have before. It's way too easy and often something that frustrates me when folks talk about Mariah's pre-Butterfly career. Despite the pop image that Mottola insisted on, what always made Mariah distinct from her pop diva peers is that she is an incredible songwriter, which has always been what allows her to rise above the fray in its machinations. She is first and foremost an artist. Pre-Butterfly, Mariah became a pop star selling millions of albums with chart-topping singles. By the time we get to her previous album, Daydream, Mariah starts leaning much more into R&B. The success of that album, the fantasy remix with ODB, took her career to another level. The Butterfly album just feels different. This is Mariah Carey at the top of her game. There's pop, 
but there's also R&B, soul, and exquisite hip-hop sampling, like on the first single release, Honey, co-produced by Puffy and Q-Tip from A Tribe Called Quest, sampling Hey DJ by our world-famous Supreme Team. It's such a lush and gorgeous track, and Mariah has never sounded better. Her amazing vocals just soar here. Truly a foreshadowing of the entire experience of this album. With The Roof, we get a hardcore hip-hop sample from Mob Deep Shook Ones Part 2. Probably my favorite song on the album, especially that remix. The sample adds something gothic and haunting to the song, something I never felt in a Mariah Carey record before, and it works amazingly well with her airy vocals. Breakdown, featuring Bone Thugs and Harmony, is another favorite and truly stands out. One of those magical collaborations that should be archived in the Smithsonian. And it's flawlessly produced. And speaking of flawless production, Drew Hill assists her on a cover of Prince's Beautiful Ones, which replaces Prince's scorching, ultra-horny, raw passion with an ethereal sense of gospel fervor and desire. And Cisco does a lot of Ciscoing here. And it's awesome. And worth noting, Mariah doesn't abandon her pop and adult contemporary sensibilities. On tracks like My All, which I really dig, Butterfly, Close My Eyes, and Outside, we experience her signature vocal nuances in lush theatrics. Like Share My World for Mary, Butterfly transformed Mariah Carey as an artist. Personal liberation is essential for artistic growth. At this point in their careers, it was dicey to evolve in this manner. Y'all have to remember audiences have expectations, especially the fan base. But both Mariah and Mary remain true to their base and true to themselves as artists in the midst of this transformation. They were able to find enormous success as they pushed beyond industry-imposed boundaries to embrace the kind of metamorphosis that only comes with risk. This is where I had my full-on Mary phase. I was now old enough to really have an experience with one of her albums from beginning to finish that felt relatable, and I could now fully grasp the layers that her work is revealing. Noting her expansive shift in production and her creative leadership really brings home what was birthed with Share My World, which is probably why it's one of my favorites. During this year, as I'm starting to understand even more the weight music carries within our souls, Another music star happened to pierce my core in ways unimaginable up to that point, and that was Janet Jackson. As the social humiliation that befalls upon countless teenagers in high school, I wasn't special. I heard the whispers in hallways about how ugly I was. I suffered unrequited crushes. I wasn't stereotypically smart like my glasses incorrectly implied. Watched white, Asian, and black boys obsess over white girls. My affinity for both Little Kim and Green Day made peers question my blackness. I even had a teacher target me because my mere existence illuminated her racism. I didn't take any of this well, and I behaved accordingly like any teenager maybe would have. I dug into the humiliation of it all, made things worse, to the point of feeling isolated, insignificant, worthless. I even wanted to be non-existent. I played the Velvet Rope a lot. I sang along with it frequently, alone, in my room. This was Janet Jackson's sixth studio album. Long Gone was our initial impression of the sweet little girl doing her best share impersonation on The Carol Burnett Show, Penny on Good Times, or the bubbliciousness of Dream Street. Post-Control, we witnessed a Janet with intention. This wasn't about upholding a Jackson legacy necessarily any longer. This was an individual who was living the entire spectrum of the human experience. And by 1997, she gifted herself, first and foremost, a work of art so beautifully experimental, bold, vulnerable, and confrontational. I hardly know where to begin. The Velvet Rope is loaded, and its timing for me to purchase and listen to its range is so bizarrely coincidental. Released on October 7th, this was Janet again, writing about what her current life was like. Her candidness reached further as the velvet rope, the term itself symbolic of a barrier and exclusivity, invites us in as she even states in the title track. During her previous world tour, Janet had a breakdown of sorts. As her painful past was catching up to her, 
She had to mine a tunnel into her own barriers. She had to do the work to find the light inside of her, the garden that needed special watering as she expresses so peacefully in the finale track of the album titled Special. Within the six to six and a half months of the Velvet Ropes production process, there were days where she just couldn't manage the way her lyrics carried. She journeyed, back to her chest being bound by the wardrobe lady on her first day of filming Good Times. Whatever triggered the endless tears that stained the counters and floors before massive stage performances. She croaks on verses that unveil our fantasies that they bear the acceptance we desire, but sometimes do not receive. By way of our reactions, we are publicly expressing how much acceptance measures our worth. But her whispers are reminders that with responsibility, there lies compassion on her track, You. Easily a singular retrospective on my high school experience. What blossoms and comes alive for the album, a word that producer Jimmy Jam used when describing his time working on it, is its breath. Where the bookends are about nurturing the inner child who didn't feel like they were enough, the succulents in between act as milestones. As some interludes demonstrate her honest interactions with friends, Janice's playful side is a part of her process in self-love. My Need, Rope Burn, the Rod Stewart cover of Tonight's the Night, and the sultry ballad Anything explores Janet's sexual proclivities 2.0 with a finesse and maturity that I can applaud for having the ability to be so rawly intimate yet so conservative. What about spits the hard edges of domestic abuse? Empty and I Get Lonely, a very popular single, points to the very realization that romance and partnerships aren't healers to the emotional pain we certainly endure. Free Zone nourishes the extensions of R&B, sampling multiple soul tracks of the past while blending spoken word elements, asserts Janet's pro-queer identity politics while embasting the intolerance that surrounds it, carving a place of freedom where people can love and be, and that safe space is boisterous in Go Deep's carefree party anthem vibes of self-care Saturdays, Janet's decompressing mission is friends, dancing, and... <clears throat> But she happens to blend dance jam with uplifting melancholy with Together Again, an ode to her friends that passed away from complications with AIDS. The song stands as a reflection of their spirit, the lives they lived and the lives Janet believed continued in another space and time. You see that vividly in the video, the disco nature reminiscent for Janet of Studio 54 floors and the spark of inspiration, Donna Summer. And the blinding light for me, the center of me finding hope in the dark swamp was Got Till It's Gone, using vocals and lyrics from folk singer Joni Mitchell's Big Yellow Taxi, intermixed with Q-tips, rhymes, and ad-libs. First, it was the video. The multiplicitous cuts of beautiful, shining Black people in an array of motion, from hair grooming to dancing, accentuated by the atmospheric earth tones that shadow the vintage style of dress, artifacts of radios, a viewfinder, cameras, and televisions. It was the very first time I saw African colonization ridiculed and the beauty of African people celebrated all at once. Janet is practically secondary to the visual message. Director Mark Romanek captures the essence of Janet's target of insularity, intimacy, and pure self-acceptance, a space we interpret as a lounge, perhaps set in pre-apartheid South Africa, a space where there are no cookout invites because the historical turmoil will never allow. A place where we can be together again. A free zone. It was where I felt safe and loved, not ugly. Janet composed this to reflect on the good that is also available to us that we can't dismiss. I had a mother who did her very best to make her children feel loved and supported. I had quirky friends and an ardent English teacher who recognized that my talent eclipsed what a standardized test couldn't comprehend. It wasn't always easy to accept that I deserved patience, positivity, happiness, and love. Sometimes I pushed it away, and I regret that now. And I'm so thankful for the times where I didn't think and just felt the good that exists in the world. And it's taken a lifetime towards active awareness to serve others similarly, because deep down, that's who I truly am. And I know now why Janet's work here hit me so deeply. Her exploration mirrored my own and struck me with a force that was life-saving. The Velvet Rope didn't need to live up to the expectation of her record-shattering contract. It was something Janet did for herself and indirectly did for people like me. It helped me heal and pave the road for healing. Let's honor it as a key to a healthier sense of freedom.
thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. I know it's not easy to revisit painful memories. It seems like your experience with the velvet rope is similar to what Mary's My Life did for me. Music can truly be a comforter in so many ways. So glad you had this album to get you through it. I love the way you explore the endless dimensions of this album as well. The Velvet Rope is a stunning album. And with each album, Janet evolves with her sound and artistry and creates something incredibly dynamic. This was the most personal she'd ever been with listeners. Her level of courage here is startling and awe-inspiring at the same time. It's such an innovative and dynamic work too. I think it's still rare that artists get this personal. It takes a tremendous amount of strength to be this vulnerable, this unguarded, this naked. Like the brownstone single, I heard it through the grapevine, or just some insightful tidbits we came across while doing our research, or from distant recollections passed down that we wanted to mention. So, Ashley, what you done heard through the grapevine? So, apparently, Rain was originally for Brandy, but RCA, SWV's record label at the time, intervened and got the song for SWV. Right after lead producer on that second Brandy album, Rodney Jerkins, shut down the idea after one Brandy Rain recording session. So come to find out, Brian Morgan did not want to be on release some tension at all, but RCA felt they needed his production somewhere on this record. So he did it, and Brian recalls having some of his best moments working with Coco on that track, even while she was having a cold. And... Desiree, the British singer we all know from You Gotta Be, sued Janet Jackson, Jam, and Lewis because Got Till It's Gone borrowed from her song Feel So High. Now, Desiree ended up winning the suit for an estimated 2 million pounds as well as, quote, 25% of the publishing royalties, end quote. Desiree says there are no hard feelings. She just wanted permission first. She didn't really want money. First, so interesting to hear the behind the scenes moments in music. I can totally hear Rain being sung by Brandy. Yes. And I know she would have done it justice, but I absolutely love SWB's version. And also, 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 I had no idea that Desiree sued Janet over Got Till It's Gone. That is news to me. I did go back and listen to Feel So High, and I guess I can see where there are some similarities. So, so, so interesting. Yeah, like apparently she was going to let it go, but then she kept hearing it and it just kept bugging her and bugging (laughs) her. And it was kind of that thing where should I go after proper credit or should I just leave alone? Especially when you're a new artist or you're not like super popular, you know what I'm saying? No, that makes sense. She decided to kind of stand on her principle and she won. So there's a little bit of sampling there, I guess. (laughs) Something happened. (laughs) Something something was there. So this was our look back on 1997. Please visit rhythmandschooledpodcast.com for our archive of shows, notes, and references for your own independent schooling. And get to know us. We fly. Our email is the411 at rhythmandschooledpodcast.com if you have feedback and want to speak out on your favorite R&B artists of the 90s. We'll be sure to read and share on the show in the future. Also follow the podcast on Instagram at rhythm underscore and underscore schooled. And be sure to listen to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and now on YouTube at Rhythm Schooled Podcast as well. And to hear curated mixtapes for each episode, find them exclusively on Spotify. Until next time, peace.